Our scripture tonight is Exodus chapter 23. The second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 23. The title of the message this evening is When Thriving Demands Fighting. When Thriving Demands Fighting. Exodus 23, we'll be looking at verses 20 to 33. Please stand for the reading of God's most holy word. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way, to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Keep watch of yourself before him and listen to his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly listen to his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will annihilate them. You shall not worship their gods. You shall not serve them, and you shall not do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly pull them down and shatter their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. For I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take the land as an inheritance. And I will set your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out from before you. You shall cut no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray. Most holy God, tonight I ask that you would make this word live to your people. God, let, let the words of this page come alive and pierce the hearts and minds of our people and change us. Oh God, may we hear it as what it is, the very word of God himself. Come now, O Spirit of God, speak through me the word that we, your people, need to hear and accomplish its divine purpose in us. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can be seated. Rosette Wamambe gives five simple tips on how to thrive in life. You ready for this? Five simple tips how to thrive in life. Number one, answer the question, who am I? Number two, live a life of gratitude and giving. Number three, have a clear definition of success. 
Number four, live an authentic life. Number five, maintain an open mindset and be a lifelong learner. So there you have it. The five simple tips how to thrive in life. Answer the question, who am I? Live a life of gratitude and giving. Have a clear definition of success. Live an authentic life. Maintain an open mindset and be a lifelong learner. Now let me ask you a question. You think that'll work for a follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, you do want to thrive, don't you? You do want to experience a meaningful and blessed life as a believer, don't you? I do hope that your goal for your life as a Christian is not just to survive, but to thrive. I hope it is. But do you think this little list, do you think thriving for the Christian is as simple as that? Just know who you are. Be, gra be, you know, be grateful. Know what success is. Live an authentic life. Be open-minded. Is that all it takes for a Christian to thrive. Well, tonight we're going to find out what it takes for a Christian to thrive. In Exodus chapter 23, God has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Okay? In Exodus 20, he gave them the Ten Commandments. He has given them his law. He has made a covenant with this people Israel. Now, God has been explaining to Israel through Moses their responsibility as his covenant people. And what we find as we come to chapter 23, God through Moses is giving Israel instructions about what's going to lie ahead of them. Remember, they're fixing to begin their journey from Mount Sinai toward the promised land. If you remember, when God brought them out of Egypt, he didn't lead them straight toward the promised land. He actually led them south. The promised land was northeast. He led them southeast toward Mount Sinai to give them the law. Well, now they've got the law and they're fixing to begin their journey toward Canaan. So God's giving them instructions for their journey and for the time when they enter the land. Now, I want you to notice what the Word of God teaches us. And what we're going to see is what is necessary for us to thrive as the people of God. Here's the first thing we need to notice the text teaches us. Deliverance includes defeat of enemies. In other words, God's deliverance of His people involves Him defeating their enemies. When God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, he didn't deliver them out of slavery to go no place in particular. No. He delivered them to bring them into the land of promise. Right? Canaan. In verse 20, he tells them, I'm going to send an angel before you to complete your deliverance, bring you into Canaan. We'll come back and talk about the angel in a little bit. But for now, look at verse 23. My angel will go before you, bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You see that? I'm going to bring you into the land, but oh, by the way, all these people are still there. All these nations that are pagans are still there. 
So, is God going to deliver them from Egypt and bring them into the land and leave them on their own to deal with all these pagan nations? No, look what the verse says. I will annihilate them in the verse 23. God is going to completely destroy the enemies of his people. You see it again in verses 27 and 28. Look at it. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. And I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. Now, that doesn't mean Israel's not going to have to face their enemies. What it does mean is God's going to strike them with the fear of God. And they will easily fall before Israel's army. God was going to demoralize and to defeat the enemies of Israel, the enemies of his people. In other words, God's deliverance of the nation of Israel involved and included him defeating their enemies. That was part of his deliverance. And here's why that's important. Suppose God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and then just gave, told them to go into the promised land and left them on their own to face all the armies and peoples that lived in the land. What do you think would happen to them? They wouldn't have made it. No, God's deliverance necessarily involved the defeat of their enemies. How many of you remember the show Extreme Home Makeover? You remember that show? A family would, who was in need would receive a complete home makeover. A, a lot of times it would be a completely new house. They'd tear the old one down and completely build a new house. Did you know that a lot of those people later lost their homes? They couldn't pay the mortgage and property taxes. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's right. The homes were not free. You were given a brand new home, but you were left to foot part of the bill for it. See, God doesn't work like that. God is not going to give the people the promised land, but then leave them on their own to pay the cost of living in it. You understand? Having to defeat all their enemies. And no, it's not the way God works. He wasn't going to leave them on their own to have to overthrow the enemies. He wasn't going to say, here's this beautiful house. Now, I hope you can pay the mortgage. It's not the way God works. He was going to deliver them and defeat their enemies. Now, I want to go back for a minute and look at this angel. I told you we'd go back to verse 20 and look at this angel that God sent. I'm going to send an angel before you, keep you along the way, bring you into the place which I have prepared. In other words, I'm going to send an angel to deliver you, to lead you into the land. The word angel is simply the Hebrew word for messenger. Now, knowing the exact identity of this angel is not nearly as important as noticing the nature of this angel. Notice what it tells us about this angel. Verse 21. The people are told to obey his voice. Keep watch of yourself before him. Listen to his voice. Don't be rebellious. And watch this. For he will not pardon your transgression. This angel somehow seems to be involved in the forgiving of sin. Notice what else it says. Since my name is in him. 
What does that mean? God's name refers to his nature, his character. In other words, this angel, this messenger, whoever it is, seems to share the nature and character of God. Notice verse 22. If you truly listen to his voice and do all that I speak, I will be an enemy to your enemies. Did you catch that? When you listen to his voice, you're doing what I speak, God says. So in other words, obeying the angel's words is obeying whose words? God's words. It appears that this one sent by God so closely represents God that he shares God's nature and obeying him is the same as obeying God. Who does that remind you of? Yeah, that reminds you very much of the Lord Jesus. Think about it. The messenger in Exodus 23 was sent by God to bring his people into the promised land. Jesus was sent by God to bring his people into their inheritance, into the kingdom of God. Jesus shares the divine nature of God and to obey Jesus is to obey God. Here's the simple thing I want you to see. Our deliverer sent by God is Jesus. And what was true for Israel is true for us. Deliverance includes the defeat of our enemies. It wasn't just Israel that had enemies. Our enemies are pictured very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. The Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. That's the first. The world is our enemy. According to the prince of the power of the air. There's the second one, the devil. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. There's the third one. Indulging the desires of the flesh. The world... The flesh and the devil are the enemies of the people of God. But Christ, our deliverer, sent by God, has defeated our enemies so that we can enter the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13 God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You see, our deliverance includes our enemies being defeated. When Jesus rescued us, the world, the flesh, and the devil were defeated. All the forces of evil. But, here's an important but. But, the defeat of our enemies doesn't mean that it's all smooth sailing from here on out. Why? Well, here's why. Because removal of our enemies isn't immediate. The removal of enemies isn't immediate. Notice what God says about Israel's enemies in verses 29 and 30. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take the land as an inheritance. Israel was not going to take possession of the land of Canaan all at once. They were too few in number. If God drove out all of the people of the land at one time, 
Many of the cities in the land would be uninhabited. They would become overgrown ghost towns. Wild animals would move in and take over. Everything would grow up. So God would drive out the enemy gradually. As Israel grew strong in their ability to occupy the land, so their enemies would be driven out. They would be removed. God had already declared victory over the enemies, but they would not be removed all at once. Now, there's something important to notice in verse 31. I will set your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. God is still going to give them the entire land, just like he promised. He's just going to do it gradually. Now, I want you to think about this. On the cross, Jesus delivered a death blow to our enemies. Amen? The world, the flesh, and the devil have been defeated. Their power is broken. But their presence remains for a time. You with me? Suppose you own a rent house. Your tenants in your rent house have stopped paying the rent. So you go to the courts and get an eviction notice. Okay, the authorities serve the eviction notice. And let's say your tenants have a certain amount of time to move out, 30 days, whatever. Well, here's the deal. Your tenants have been evicted. Your problem is solved, right? But for 30 days, you still got to tolerate them living in the house. You with me? Their, their judgment's been passed. It's a done deal. But for a season, you still have to tolerate their presence. See, it's the same way in our life. We're delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've been delivered from the kingdom of Satan. We've been already made citizens of the kingdom of God. But at present, God is still gathering sons and daughters into his kingdom. And only when he's gathered in the last one will Christ return and usher in the kingdom of God in all its fullness. Only then will our enemies be fully and finally removed. Are you with me? They're already defeated. The outcome is not in question. But we still have to deal with their presence for a time. So what do we do while our enemy remains? Okay, here's the third thing I want you to see from this text. Remaining enemies are dealt with ruthlessly. Remaining enemies are to be dealt with ruthlessly. Verse 23, God says he's going to bring the people into the land that their enemies currently occupy. But notice verse 24. You shall not worship their gods. You shall not serve them. You shall not do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly pull them down and shatter their sacred pillars in pieces. What's he saying? He's saying remove every evidence of their false worship and godless behavior. Let me say that again. Remove every evidence of their false worship and godless behavior. Look at verse 32. You shall cut no covenant with them or with their 
gods. What's that mean? Don't make any deals with the enemy. Don't compromise with them. Don't make deals with the enemy. Be ruthless in dealing with your enemy. Why? Verse 33. They shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. See, if Israel allowed the enemy to remain in the land, if they failed to deal ruthlessly with the enemy, they would be drawn into participating in the religion of these enemies, to adopting their practices, to blending in with their culture. And the result is they would violate their covenant with God unless they dealt with their enemies ruthlessly. Removing them and removing their false religion, they would certainly become a major stumbling block for the people of God. And as we know, that's eventually what happened. Let me ask you this. How are you gonna quit eating sweets if you got a pantry full of Oreos and little Debbie cakes? How are you gonna quit drinking if you got a refrigerator full of beer? How's that going to happen? You can't. You got to throw all those sweets in the trash and you got to pour that beer down the drain. Listen, how do you deal with your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil until the day comes when Christ removes them once and for all? They're defeated, but they're still there. They haven't gone away. You still have to face them. You still have to deal with them. How do you deal with them? You deal with them ruthlessly. Make no compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Think about this. All of your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, have the same goal. They do. They have the same goal to get you to sin. So what do you do? You do everything you can to eliminate the temptation to sin as much as you possibly can. Let me say it this way. Take radical measures to keep yourself from sin. And when you identify a sin in your life, take radical measures to be rid of it. Be ruthless. No compromise with sin. If it's a sin in a relationship, end the relationship. Cut off the cable TV, get new friends, change jobs, whatever you have to do to be rid of that sin as ruthlessly an action as it calls for you, do it. Be rid of sin, don't compromise with it. As long as the world, the devil, and the flesh remain, as long as we still have their presence among us, God's people got to be willing to throw out the Oreos. God's people got to be willing to pour the beer down the drain. God's people got to be willing to set fire to the pornographic magazines, turn off the cable, whatever it has to. We as God's people, as long as the enemy remains, have to be willing to take whatever measures necessary to remove sin from our lives. And God's word gives us a wonderful incentive for doing that. I want you to see it. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. And here's where this whole thing comes together. Overcoming enemies results in thriving. 
Overcoming enemies results in thriving. I want to read verses 24 to 26 again. You shall not worship their gods. You shall not serve them. You shall not do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly pull them down and shatter their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Did you catch that? I will bless your bread and water. That's the blessing of provision. I will remove sickness from your midst. That's the blessing of health. No one will miscarry or be barren. That's the blessing of fertility. I will fulfill the number of your days, the blessing of long life. Here's what he's saying. If you will be ruthless in dealing with the enemy and serve me only, I will bless you and you will thrive in the land. Now, this isn't a promise of a trouble-free, pain-free existence, but it's the promise of a blessed life. Now, we need to acknowledge you and I are not in the same situation as Israel. We're not under the law as a covenant. We're not under the covenant of law. We're under the new covenant. But the law still has an application for us. For us, the law is spiritual. That means not everything in the law has a literal application. We look for the spiritual application in God's law. Now, let me give you just one example. The law required, it says, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. We don't, we don't obey that literally. But we do recognize the spiritual principle behind it and acknowledge that. And it means don't adopt the practices of pagans. You know, don't, don't allow yourself to be identified with them by doing the things that pagan godless people do. So the law for us is spiritual. Now, obviously, God is not promising you and I that we will thrive in the land the same way he was promising Israel. It's the principle behind this we apply. The spiritual principle. What is the principle? God blesses those who deal ruthlessly with sin so that they can be obedient to him. That's simple. And that's taught all over the Bible. This isn't a promise of a pain-free, materially prosperous life. That's not what he's promising us here. The Bible tells us we're going to face pain and problems and persecution as Christians. We know that. But even in the midst of pain, we can still thrive in our relationship with God. We can still enjoy a blessed life as God's people. Listen, the blessings of God for you and I are peace in your soul that circumstances can't steal. Right? It is the blessing of a joyful, happy heart through all the ups and downs of life. It's the blessing of a sense of purpose and fulfillment that many people in this life never discover. Many people in this life never know why they're here. They never really discover their purpose and find a life of fulfillment. But for us, we can. It's the blessing of assurance of your eternal destiny. It's the absence of fear. And sometimes God's blessings do take the form of finances and good health and pleasant circumstances. 
But no matter what our circumstances, as believers, we can thrive in our relationship with God as his people if we deal ruthlessly with sin. And the reason is simple, because God blesses obedience. You see, when you deal ruthlessly with sin, you're not just fighting to keep from disobeying God, you're fighting to obey God, you understand? It's the same fight. When you're fighting to be rid of sin, you're fighting to obey God. And while you and I are certainly not saved by obedience, overcoming sin promotes obedience. And God does bless obedience. That's not just Old Testament. Let me give you some New Testament scripture. Luke eleven twenty eight. But Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. James 1, 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. God blesses obedience. We can thrive in our relationship with God in enjoying the blessings of God if we will deal ruthlessly with our enemies. Why? Because overcoming enemies results in thriving. Listen, think about the man who is addicted to alcohol. The man who's willing to pour that beer down the sink. The man who's willing to stay away from his friends who drink. The man who's willing to take a different route to work, one that doesn't take him by the liquor store. The man who's in willing to list other people to help hold him accountable. The man who is willing to be ruthless in avoiding alcohol is going to be able to enjoy all the blessings of living a sober life. The blessings that drunkenness robbed him of. See, when you're ruthless, with the sin that remains in your life, you're able to enjoy all the blessings of this life that sin robs you of. The sweet peace of God and your fellowship with God and your fruitfulness for God and the joy of God. When you're ruthless in dealing with your sin, you're able to live the blessed life. But if you give in to sin, and you refuse to go to war against it. You forfeit many of the blessings of God and you invite the pain of his discipline. Let me give you the whole sermon right here in a sentence. You ready? I'm going to give you the whole thing. This is God's word to us tonight. God's deliverance of his people includes absolute victory over their enemies. But because that victory is not immediate, God's people must deal ruthlessly with their enemies so they can thrive. Let me say that again. God's deliverance of his people includes absolute victory over their enemies. But because that victory is not immediate, God's people must deal ruthlessly with their enemies so they can thrive. How do you deal ruthlessly with your sin? Well, I'm just going to make a suggestion. There's more than one way to go about it, but I want to give you a simple strategy you can use 
to go to war against your sin. I want to give you a strategy using the acronym SIN, S-I-N. Here's the first part. If you want to go to war against your sin, the S of sin stands for specific strategy. In other words, you have to have a specific strategy. Here's the idea. Once you identify a sin in your life that needs to be overcome, you have to formulate some type of strategy to overcome that sin. And remember, you have to be ruthless. You have to ask yourself, what am I going to have to do if I'm going to remove this sin from my life? If your sin is watching immoral TV shows, maybe your strategy is to cut off the cable TV. Right? Whatever your sin is, if your sin is lusting after this particular person who is not your spouse, you may have to avoid that person. If, if, if much as possible, avoid being in their where you can see them. Look, whatever it is, you got to be ruthless, but you have to start with having some type of strategy. Whether it's a specific sin that you commit or maybe just a temptation to sin. Either one, you got to have a strategy for how you can avoid that temptation, for how you can remove that sin. Then the I in sin stands for involve God. If you've been a Christian very long at all, you know that you cannot overcome sin in your own strength. You can't do it. It's not in you. So no matter how good your intentions are, you're going to need help. The good news is every believer has been given the Holy Spirit of God to live on the inside of you. Part of the Spirit's work in your life is to empower you to overcome sin, to help you to live obediently. So once you have identified something you can do, specific steps you can take to overcome sin, then go before the Lord and Seek his help. In other words, get God involved in your fight against sin. Pray that he would take away your desire for that sin. Pray that he would give you divine strength to overcome that sin. See, in your fight against sin, don't make the mistake of relying on your own willpower. That's never going to work. Rely on God's power. Specify a strategy, then involve God. And in the end, in sin stands for neutralize sin. Once you have a strategy, once you've gotten God involved, all that's left for you is to carry out your plan. Go on the attack. Attack your sin. Set the plan in motion. Don't delay. Don't make excuses. Don't compromise. Go into attack mode. Cancel that TV subscription. Get an accountability partner. Put a filter on your internet. Whatever you got to do. Look, you specified a strategy. You got God involved. Now go to get to work ridding yourself of that sin with the power of God on your side. Fight sin in the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can thrive in your relationship with God. Kevin Kim told this story in a sermon he called Total Nakedness. Every year on Ash Wednesday, they had a service and the people had an opportunity to write their sin, their confession of sin, on a piece of paper, they would fold the sin, fold the confession piece of paper, and then they would walk forward and put it onto a wooden cross with a pen, supposed to remind them of, you know, when you confess, Christ forgives. Well, one year, this particular family came to the service, and they walked through, the, you know, the worship experience as a family. The family did it together, and they came to the confession station. They explained to their six-year-old son, Okay, what they were doing, we're writing our confession of sin on here. Then we're going to, you know, fold it up and pin it on the cross. 
So everybody grabbed a sheet of paper. They started writing their confessions on the paper. The little boy did the same thing. Now remember, the little boy is six. How do six-year-olds write? In big block letters. Just clear as day. So he writes his confession on the piece of paper. The rest of his family wrote their confessions, you know, and then they carefully folded the paper so nobody could see what they'd wrote. And they intentionally left their name off of the piece of paper as well. Then they walked to the cross and they pinned their confession on the cross. Here's what the six-year-old wrote on his paper. God, I'm sorry because I lie. But then he wrote his name on it. And not only did he write his name on it, he wouldn't fold it. He walked to the front and pinned it to the cross. Those big block letters written like a six-year-old with his name on it for everybody to see. His parents said, why don't you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it so nobody can see it? And this is what he said. I wrote my name on it because I want everyone to see. Because if they know it was me, maybe they can help me stop. Listen, you want to thrive as a Christian? Do you want to be blessed of God Get ruthless with your sin. Even if that means you have to write it in big block letters and pin it up for the whole church to see. Let's pray.